Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody. Welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Today, I am very fortunate to be joined by Kevin Fitzgerald who is our new assistant conductor of the Alabama Symphony, as well as the music director of the Alabama Youth Symphony Orchestra. Uh, We were very fortunate to have Kevin. Uh, I remember his audition process, and he was very informed, very knowledgeable, but also very personable. And so, uh, yeah, we feel very fortunate to have him. He's already done a lot to work with the youth program and kind of get it headed in a direction that I think we can all be proud of. And so, um, Kevin, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you joining me. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So I think the easiest way to start off all of these interviews would be to just talk about where you're from, where you were born, where you grew up, if that's the same place, Mm -hmm. kind of the path you took as a young child to get yourself into the shoes that you're in today, and we'll go from there. Nice. Well, um, I was born on March 26, 1991. I was born in Detroit. Um, I was raised in a town called Brighton, which is a suburb of Ann Arbor. So if anyone doesn't know Michigan, Detroit is, you know, borders Canada, bottom right corner of the mitten. And then uh, Ann Arbor is about, if you look on the map, three or four inches west. Um, And I live right north of that, so about an hour drive to Detroit. And I lived in the same house from when I was born to when I was 16. And um, then I, uh, and you know, I had a really good childhood, a very good childhood. I can't complain. Um, you know, we were Did like you have any brothers or sisters or anything like that. Yeah, I have a younger brother named Bob, and he was uh, born when I was uh, six years apart. So, um, and uh, that you know, I lived out in kind of a rural area. Um, I didn't have any. Uh, there were very few houses on my street, which was a dirt road. Uh, we lived on property that has been in my family for generations um yeah so the house next to mine was owned by my great-grandparents my dad's great-grandparents and um they owned you know almost 200 acres on that area and then as it had developed you know people had bought plots and they had sold land and things like that so i grew up on the same road as my dad grew up on he lived he grew up down the street um and so i grew up next door to my grandparents and that was a really cool yeah, I'm experience. sure to have them that close, yeah. For sure, for sure. And actually my um my grandma, uh, my grandma Fitzgerald, she she played classical music all the time in the house. She never I didn't really have a musical family, but she definitely had classical music playing in the house a lot um and things like that. Are there any recordings or any particular pieces that she played all the time or was it kind of a mix because my mom would play i grew up listening to harry james oh nice and, Can't uh, go wrong yeah there. and the um which orchestra did he play for it wasn't benny goodman it was uh was it duke ellington no no whatever I, who was it Whatever. It's not important. Uh, I grew up listening to him and Rafael Mendez were the two people. Oh, and it was nice. we just had a lot of those CDs. And so I feel like that was like such a huge part of my childhood is just like listening to those trumpet players. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's similar for you that you heard kind of the same pieces or if it was more of an eclectic mix. I remember specifically she played Pines of Rome all the time. She had an album of that. Do you feel like that affected your decision to become a trumpet player by any? Maybe. 
<laughs> I mean, the trumpet thing is really funny because I did not intend to be a musician. I don't have a musical family or in the sense that people were, you know, encouraging me to start music. I started way late at 11 um, in sixth grade. I just didn't want to take gym. <laughs> so sixth grade, I was not like an athletic kid. You know, I hadn't really found my niche, so, so to speak. And my dad had a trombone in the basement from when he was in band. And they wanted me to play that because they didn't want to get a new instrument. But I said, it's too big. I don't want to, like, carry that around. Right, the priorities when you're a kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I got stuck with the trumpet. And it was pretty quick the aptitude started to show itself. My mom just made a deal. She said, I'll let you be in band if you practice 15 minutes a day. And I didn't think anything of that. 15 minutes a day. Now that I've been teaching some, I know that 15 minutes a day is a whole lot to ask. Right. Some kids. Yeah, sometimes. But yeah. <laughs> for me, you know, I just did it. And I kind of look back on it. And I mean, my in my sixth grade year, I was able to play, you know, by the end of my sixth grade year, I was able to play B, B flat scale two octaves. Wow. So, you know, I just I had a teacher, but I also had like the attitude for it. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, I always tell my students this. It was because of this girl that I went to school with named <sighs> Sally Beth Sharp. And she came from a musical family and all of her family played instruments and all of them played brass instruments with the exception of her sister that played flute. And so she grew up playing and being around this. And she was way better than me. When we started out and we became friends, but then there became this friendly rivalry. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I was trying to catch up to her. So she was like my standard and I was always trying to beat her. That's funny how that works. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So um, if Sally Beth ever hears this, thank you, Sally <laughs> yeah, Beth, right. for pushing the me. The motivation. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I mean, I, I hadn't really been good at anything, quote unquote. I was a good student, but I hadn't really found my thing. And this became my thing, music. Sure. So, what do you? This I want to take a little sidestep here. What are your thoughts on the idea of intrinsic motivation versus mm -hmm. external motivation? Right. Then the idea that if you're in a place where you're surrounded by amazing musicians, or in school you're surrounded by uh, you know wonderful students that are working hard, pushing themselves, that that can be a driver for motivation for you to get better. But if that is the only driver, once you leave that place. If you don't have that intrinsic motivation, yeah. seems like it's harder. Do you have any thoughts on that kind of thing, given that your kind of your start was motivated so externally? Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Um, and I've had to deal with this. I've had to deal with the fact that the reason that. It, so my initial spark was like competition and the fact that it was fun for me and it was something that came pretty easily to me. Um, but I kind of think that all musicians start out that way a little bit. If things are really hard for you at the beginning, it might not be. It's easy to keep up with it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I would definitely say that competition and becoming the best and winning was a big focus for me until probably high, late high school. And that's when I really started to fall in love with music as an art form. And I think that's where I get the intrinsic motivation within myself. And this probably connects a little bit to why I switched or I why I decided I knew it was going to be a conductor. Because... I didn't love the the act of playing the trumpet nearly as much as I loved like how the trumpet served the art of music sure, and yeah, the art yeah. of music in general. So I kind of realized what you just said is that trumpet was very much competition oriented. And like, you know, from a very early age, I started studying with a professional trumpet player, uh, Ramon Parcells, who was principal of trumpet oh, yeah, in the Detroit yeah. Symphony, age 14, which is quite early to study with someone with that intense 
focus. And, you know, he would always tell me like, you know, if you play like that, you're never going to win a job. If you, you can't play like that, you know, like he would always, he, he wouldn't make it only about the job, but he would be very real about how my playing would stack up. And so in my head, it was a lot, there was a lot of that garbage about, you yeah. know, competition. Sure. Sure. So, um, when I kind of, when I went to interlocking uh, arts Academy for my last two years of high school and started studying with Ken Larson, Who's a great person? I, I know. know yeah, him. I know. I played one of his horns for a while. Yeah, he's a great guy. I still play one of his horns. Uh, Ken, if you're listening, thanks for putting up with me. Um, he he taught me so much about the embouchure and the fundamentals of the instrument, and but he taught me so much about the psychology of playing, and that's when I kind of had to start addressing the the competition aspect because if you focus on that when you're playing it's going to sound like garbage and you're going to feel like garbage the whole time. Yeah. It seems like that mental part of it is obviously so unbelievably important, but yeah. So if the mental thing is focused on something like competition, you certainly can progress, but it doesn't feel like it has maybe as pure of a thing that music kind of needs, I think. Right. Totally. You got to have that pure intention. Um, and this was a huge wake up call for me because that uh, before I went to Interlochen, I won like the statewide concerto competition through the the Solon Ensemble. Uh, there were like twelve of us that got invited to compete. I didn't win the final spot to play with the orchestra, but there were twelve of us, and I was the only trumpet. So like it had to be one for each instrument. And um, so at that point, I had this idea in my head that I had reached some kind of like top pinnacle that I was like it. the best. <laughs> Um, and then I went to Interlock in the next fall and we had our, our ensemble placement auditions. And I think I got like 13th chair in the whole studio because there were four guys in, in orchestra. And then I was like seventh chair in band or something, which was a big band, you know, a lot of students. So I remember calling my mom. I was just in tears. I was just like, mom, like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I thought I was, I thought I knew what I was doing and I just, I don't know what I'm doing anymore, you know, and I have to, and it was that moment where she said, you know, you have to decide if you want to get better or if you want to just live in this idea that you think you're the best. Sure. Yeah. That's pretty good advice. Yeah. Yeah. My mom's a wise lady. She has a lot of good advice. Um, and you know, that began, began the, the two year process of really rebuilding my playing changing my sound completely. Um, I mean, if there are trumpet players listening to this, I had a very thuddy, uh, dark, non-brilliant sound. And I had to get that that fire back yeah, into right. my sound. Yeah. And I had to really work. Like, I'm talking, like, not an amateur change, but a psychological sound concept change that followed with some adjustments. Yeah, so this is an interesting topic that um, I find it hard sometimes to talk about because I feel that I've generally just had a good sound because I've had good models. Yeah, you have a great sound. But um, so for someone like you who feels like you did a lot of work to improve your sound with the focus on improving the sound, what kinds of things were you doing to to yeah. say, I'm going to go from this study dark sound to more of a, a more pingy, brilliant like sparkly sound kind of what things were you focused on in order to do that well it wasn't an easy battle because i thought listening to my sound that that's how i wanted it to sound it was matching up what i what was in my head and what was coming out was matching up i had to change what was in my head i thought players like maurice andre sounded terrible that they had like a nasally sound 
And I didn't want to sound nasally. I wanted to sound big and open. And I was listening to a lot of European trumpet players playing on rotary trumpets. And I remember in this, I tell my students to this day, be careful what you listen to first. Because the first CD I got from Borders, a trumpet CD, was this off-brand, like almost like easy listening album that said the trumpet. And it had this rotary trumpet on the front. And there was this, this Italian guy. You can look him up. His name's Nello Salza. And he's kind of like a Chris Bodie of Italy, but a little but a little more classical, like less jazz oriented. But in the idea that it's not like the style of playing you're gonna play in an orchestra. It's more like a soloistic style. And this guy had the darkest sound on the planet. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think you could find a speck of light in the whole thing. <laughs> but to my ear, it was beautiful. Like sure, it had, sure. a, it had and he had such a lyrical quality. And that was what I was good at and still am. That's my strength. Like singing through the horn and creating that creating lines and stuff. He was so amazing at that. And so for that I'm grateful to have that model. Because lyrical playing was always easy for me. Uh because of that. But I had this idea in my head, this dark sound I was trying to make. So to go back to your question about how did I fix it, I had to start listening to trumpet players that I, and I had to like really, 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 really like absorb a different style of playing, more of a a brighter sound. Um, And I had to, I had to, Ken would tell me, okay, I'm going to, you know, we're going to find the sound and then I'm just going to tell you to hold on to it in the lesson and then, you know, keep that feeling going, hang on to that place, mm-hmm. that setting. Really now in retrospect, now that I'm a pretty solid teacher, my tongue was too low in the back um, and my uh, my bottom lip is probably too rolled out. Um, but it really, it comes down to the sound concept. So he would just have me play long tones or scales and he would tell me, he would point to me when I would lose the sound. Yeah. And he'd be like, okay, go try it again. And basically, it was just like copy-paste. Find the sound on one note, try to transfer to the next note. Um, I did a lot of recording myself. Yeah, I think that's pretty essential for any kind of any kind of progress, really. But especially yeah. for this kind of thing, you got to know what you, what you sound for like sure. for sure. Absolutely. And he was so big on recording yourself for the psychological aspect because he would say, you judge yourself when you listen back. You don't judge yourself while you're playing it. Yeah, that's a good Cause if you, Yeah, because he said if you get into the habit of pl- judging while you play, how are you going to differentiate when you're auditioning versus when you're practicing versus when you're performing? You don't want the playing to be mixed with the judging at all. You yeah, want the judging to happen that's after. That's really great advice, too. Yeah. Yeah, he's a... I mean, he's put out so many good players, and um, I'm... Yeah, he's great. But, yeah, it ha- he wanted me... You know, the actual thing that he did. He made... He taught me how to do this. Just like no effort. He called it a mosquito fart. <laughs> He's like, you got to get your mosquito fart solid because I couldn't do it. I don't think I could even do that yeah. right now. Yeah. So that's not exactly what you do when you play the horn, but it's like a conditioning thing sure. to create an aperture that's really small, but relaxed enough to create a free buzz vibration mm-hmm. just in the center. And if you, he said at the, at the, at the core of any brilliant trumpet sound is that little buzz. I'd agree. Yeah. Just this tiny bit of, like focus, right? Yeah. Just tons, like yeah. a pinprick kind of at the front. That's how I think about it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. A little tiny opening. And he wasn't big on free buzzing, but he was big on getting that mosquito fart to happen. Yeah, yeah. And he said it had, I needed to like engage my bottom, the, 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 the tissue under my bottom lip to keep it focused and forward. 
So, so how do you balance that then when you're working on that kind of very technical, like focusing on what your bottom lip is doing and maybe yeah. what everything, how do you balance that with what you were talking about a second ago where it's the concept is the most important though. Yeah. So how do you balance those two things? How do you focus on, I got to focus on the physical here, but then ultimately I got to get to the conceptual being the thing that's driving it. For sure. I think that he wanted me at first to drop the conceptual for a little bit and subliminally have the listening to recordings kind of come through through listening. But he definitely had this approach where the warm-up, which I did, and I tell my students this, every single day I did a practice from 7 to 8 before orchestra or band. And I ate dinner, breakfast from 6.30 to 7. And we did this like a, a, a mob of brass players. We did this every single day for two years i mean summer we didn't do it sure but that kind of consistency plays a lot into developing so um i was what he said was focus on that stuff in the warm-up think really about what you're doing and then when you go to play music you drop it you know and hope that it kind of just yeah works itself yeah. into your playing yeah eventually yeah. He, yeah he would always say hear what you want and blow for it hear what you want hear it and play it man i just <laughs> did a I don't know when it's going to be released or maybe it'll be released at this point. I have no idea. Um, but uh, I just did yet last night um, a, a, a podcast on how Arn- Arnold Jacobs and yeah. mindfulness and what they have in common in terms oh, of focusing nice. on the present moment and then sort of a reflection on how those two things sure. in my life, how those two studies came together to sort of help my my mindset while performing, really, right? To get it into a good place. It's exactly what you're talking about right sure. now, though. Just you try to get that sound in your head, and then you just don't try to question it too much, and then you work out the physical stuff for sure later, separately, kind of. I think it's pretty interesting. Totally. Uh, it's just a different way of saying a very similar thing. So, um, so you, I assume you got done with interlocking, and then you went to undergraduate school. Yeah, I went to Eastman School of Music. Uh, I studied with James Thompson. A uh, trumpet player who, if you're a trumpet player, you know him. But if you don't know him, he was a principal trumpet of the Montreal Symphony for many years. And then af- after that, he was in the Atlanta Symphony. Yeah, he's on so many of those amazing. I, I'm sure some of those Atlanta ones that I'm really familiar yeah. with, those Dutois Montreal yeah. recordings. He's on all those. Yeah, it's Amazing insane. playing. Yeah, he's a he, he taught me so much about the trumpet, but he taught me so much more about music. And at this point, I had pretty much psychologically committed to a life as a conductor. But what I had to do in order to get to the level I needed to on the trumpet to deserve to become a conductor is I had to convince myself that I wanted to be a trumpet player while I was in school. So I was living like two lives, two mindsets. Like when I was in the practice room, I was going to be the next principal trumpet of the, of the Metropolitan Opera or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like I was I was practicing to win. I was practicing to get good. I was practicing for mastery. Um, but, you know, I was also conducting all the time. And studying scores all the time. And I was a theory major, too. So I was studying music theory really intensely. And, like, how does music work? And so it was kind of like I had to have this split focus. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But Jim Thompson, he we just call him Thompson. He, he has played with so many good conductors and has played at the highest level the whole repertoire, he was able to teach me so much about style. Like what makes Ravel sound like Ravel and what makes Brahms sound like Brahms. And how does that translate to the actual technical execution as a brass player? And just that alone. I mean, had he never taught me anything about the technique of the trumpet, I would have learned so much. So I still, you know, when I'm conducting or rehearsing any group of any level, I'm still 
hearing him in my head and things that he used to say. So, and things that conductors told him. So, yeah. That's really good. Does he have any stories in particular? Or like, I'm sure he has lots of stories, but do you remember any of them that are of note? Not only maybe because they were funny, but the lesson he learned made a profound impact on you. Is there anything, any stories like that that you can think of right yeah, off the top? Yeah, well, I mean, there's one time he said that the conductor was telling him he sounded too bright and he wanted him to sound darker. And all he did was didn't decay off the notes. He didn't have any ping on the note. He just, you know, there was no ba. It was just ba. And then the conductor said it was perfect. <laughs> so what he said about that story is that the the impression that you make has so much to do with the attack. And then if you sustain or do a, a tiny decay in the note. Sure. Yeah. Um, That's so interesting. I have a belief that all color is controlled by articulation yeah, 100%. And, and how you how you follow through with the note or how you don't follow through with the note, how hard you articulate. It. I find it hard to change the sound after the sound has started without compromising the oh, integrity yeah. of the sound. So you really kind of have to do it at the beginning of the sound. Or your accuracy. I mean, if you start coloring with the tongue placement and stuff, and sure. I mean, yeah, you might get some cool results, but you're playing with fire. Right, yeah. If you're yeah. messing with your vowel and all that stuff, I mean, you can get some cool sounds, but is it worth it in a professional situation? Maybe not. <laughs> so then if you're living this, this double life, uh, trumpet player conductor, yeah. whatever other things you're interested in at this point, when did you finally make the ultimate shift of, I'm going to put most of, if not all of my efforts into conducting? Yeah, well, it's interesting because, you know, as a student at Eastman, I always had ensemble requirements the whole time and I always had lessons. So I couldn't really stop practicing or let my playing go because I had to, you know, show up for my colleagues and show up for the conductors, uh, especially since I was studying conducting since my freshman year with Mark Scatterday, who's the Eastman Wind Ensemble music director. And I can't study with him and then play poorly in his group. <laughs> You know, so yeah. um, not yeah. that I would ever want to play poorly anyway, but there, I had this very strong internal sense of um, gratitude towards him and like a sense of duty that I had to be my best for him and to thank him for all the time he invested in me and the opportunities he gave me. So, I mean, I made the decision probably around junior year that that was for sure what I was going to do, but I still had to, you know, crank it until the last note I played on that stage. Right, yeah. No, that um, makes sense. So, I mean, a lot of people... I mean, there's no two conductors that have the same path. I would say most conductors my, who are, you know, who studied since 1980 going on, you know, they, they go into a master's program right away. Mm -hmm. That's what I did. So I applied to a bunch of master's programs in condu orchestral conducting, and I had a bunch of auditions. But my first audition um, was at University of Michigan, which is, was my top choice anyway. And I found out that I got in right after the audition. So I just canceled the other ones. Yeah, nice. Which, you know, in retrospect, it's not that I would have gone somewhere else. It's just uh, conducting auditions are very weird things because you're showing up to an orchestra you don't know. You don't know anyone there. You have to bring what you've got and you've got to make it work with the first time, yeah. you know, um, and that doesn't change at the professional level. You can't, you know, anybody can rehearse something to make it work, but can you make it work immediately? Um, so I wish I would have had the practice of, you know, the experience of auditioning in those other schools because I would have conducted more orchestras, but money was an issue. And so I didn't want to fly around and well, and like when you know. You know, right? I mean, yeah. it was a similar thing for me. I 
Um, I auditioned at a couple of schools. Uh, I, I got to audition at all the schools. And then Northwestern, for me, was my top choice. So when I found out I got into Northwestern, I just emailed everybody. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know if you're planning on giving me scholarship or not, but I want to like let you know that I've committed to Northwestern just in case, you know, right. just in case there's like that you could take that money and give it to somebody else. I just I just felt like when you know that's the, oh, yeah. the path you want to go, I feel like, um, you know. It's, and just, I worked in admissions at Eastman as a student worker, so I can tell you that that's the right thing to do. You know, let people know if you've chosen not right. to go to that school. Yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> So you got you went to Michigan then for your grad program? Yeah, and it was totally it was a big life shift for me because I didn't go home in the summers when I was living at Eastman. I stayed in the summer um I cuz I was working at the library, Sibley Music Library. I uh lived in the dorm for the first two summers and then I got an apartment off campus and then I lived in, I had my apartment for the the last two summers and um I didn't go home, so I was essentially like really living in Rochester for four solid years. I did some conducting programs. I traveled a little bit, but I mainly stayed there and worked and took lessons with Thompson. And actually, my biggest breakthroughs were in the summer because I had a lot of time to practice and no distractions. Right, right, yeah. So um, moving back to Michigan was a huge shift because I had not lived in Michigan since Interlochen. So it's like, you know, as an individual, you grow a lot between 18 and 22, and to top it off, I was moving back in with my parents. So, so you're just like living the old life again. But yeah, but I'm totally completely different. different person, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. luckily, my parents, you know, my mom especially, she is so great. And like, I never felt like she was trying to make like baby me or make me be a kid again. She's just very much very accepting and always let me be and do what I wanted. But um, and having that support was really great because you know. Living the conducting life is hard because it is super. I mean, everything in music is competitive, but there's only one conductor in the room per orchestra per per situation. So, um, you know, I knew it was competitive, and the program I was in is fairly prestigious and competitive, and the culture is very intense. So, having that um, emotional support during my master's of just being able to come home, hug my mom. I mean, how many times people, they don't live with their mom anymore. And they like, I wish I could just get a, a hug from my mom. You know, yeah. I could get that. That's amazing. Yeah. It was totally amazing. And I was so grateful for it. Um, you know, I only lived about a 15 minute drive away from the school of music in Michigan. So it was pretty convenient. And of course the financial saving money, not having to pay rent during grad school was amazing. Um, and I learned so much in those two years. So my teacher's name is Ken Kiesler. And if you're a conductor, you know that name. Um, he's taught so many successful students. It's, you know, all of his students are working and doing great things. Um, and he followed, he filled in for Gustav Meyer, who was the legend of the conducting program sure, sure. Okay. at Michigan. And he taught tons of people. I mean, a whole generation essentially. And he was associated with Tanglewood as well. So there was a lot, a lot of great things happening conducting wise at Michigan and all three disciplines and choral and also wind ensemble, like a lot of great conductors. Um, you know, when Bob Reynolds was at Michigan, he, he put out generations of, you know, wind ensemble conductors that have done great work. So it was a very big honor to be involved with that program, but you know, everything comes at a cost. And, um, Ken is a very demanding teacher, and he he believes that 
you kind of have to exercise your own demons in order to become a good conductor. And you have to kind of get the things that block you from being a vulnerable conduit for the music. You've got to get those things out. And he likes to help you get them out. And it's not, and he does it in public, and it's not always painless. Um, And I know for me, at the time... I thought some of the things he would have me do, I hated them. I like hated him for making me do them. Um, But in looking back, any examples in particular that you're willing to share? (laughs) He, you know, his whole approach is that you never plan a gesture or any kind of gesticulation. It has to come from within. And through the study of the music, you feel a response to what you're hearing internally and then the body and the hands and the face and everything follows that. So it's very similar kind of what you were talking about the trumpet then that the concept yeah. drives the, For sure. the physical aspect. 100%, 100%. It's it's all really everything in life is all about the same thing, right? But he if he sensed that what you were doing was like fake or like any kind of a gross gesticulation or like just a habit he would not allow that to continue. So he thought that I had like a bunch of these like gesticulations and habits in, in my conducting. So what he would have me do for the first couple sessions is he would have me conduct. He would want to put my body in an unfamiliar position so that I wouldn't have those triggers. So you have me stand on the podium pigeon toed <laughs> and he would have me stand with my head completely down, eyes closed. So I couldn't move my head around. And he's like, okay, now that you, you know, you're not going to be able to move around your feet. You're not going to be able to gesticulate your head around, you know, now conduct and put everything in the hands. And it felt so humiliating. It felt, it felt like I was being made to look bad. But what he was really trying to teach me was it doesn't matter if you look bad as long as the music is coming through. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Which I know now because he always said to people, do you want to get better? Or do you want to look good? You know, because conductors, we we get praised for conducting well and looking good. But that really doesn't communicate the contact, content of the music. You know, there are some great conductors like George Schulte, for example, who sometimes looks like he's having like a seizure on the podium. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he's getting the music. Yeah, it's incredible, actually. There's this, I'm sure you've seen it, this recording of... Uh, Siegfried's funeral march. Holy crap! Vienna, yes, and it's like he. There's He's, a part, the sextuplet, yeah, where he conducts every single one. Oh, and it yeah. looks like his body's convulsing. <laughs> but there's just so much raw energy from sure. that orchestra. It's it's unbelievable. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. And that's what I'm talking about. He would bring up Schulte all the time because he says Schulte never had a conducting lesson. You know, Schulte was just an incredible musician who wouldn't take no for an answer when it came to what he was hearing. And so, you know, there were, there were things in the ego of my 21 year old mind, starting that degree, 22 year old mind that seemed really painful. Like, why are you humiliating me like this? What, you know, you're not doing this to the other students. Why am I getting picked on? But in retrospect, it was exactly what I needed um, to, what I needed to do was I needed to disconnect the wires from looking good and making music. Like I thought that if I conducted a certain way, it would be good enough. But he was saying, no, everything you do has to come from the music. And if it's not coming from the music, you shouldn't do it. So what are your, this is kind of a related thing to what you just talked about, but a slightly different road to take. What are your ideas and thoughts on, um, 
basically making yourself uncomfortable for the sake of growth, right? All growth happens, generally speaking, through pain in life, right? And so maybe kind of encouraging words or just sort of a, a call to action for anybody listening that might feel like, they have this plan for growth or something like that, mm-hmm. but it involves being uncomfortable or making themselves uncomfortable. Even maybe some more examples of where you feel like you were incredibly uncomfortable, but you forced yourself to do it. And now you can see the the fruits of your trials, so to speak, in terms of how you've grown from that. Well, first, I would agree that most growth comes through pain. I think sometimes you can have a, a breakthrough through serendipity and it's not going to be necessarily something that hurts but i think all growth stems from dissatisfaction you know like for example if i hadn't decided that i was dissatisfied with my sound i wouldn't have changed it you know um if i hadn't accepted the fact that i was dissatisfied with my conducting and i needed to improve it because of what my teacher was saying i wouldn't have done it you know so i think if you feel dissatisfied about a certain area of your artistic life or your personal life, you've got to take that seriously and don't just be blase about that. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think that like, for example, sometimes I don't feel like studying scores. Like I don't feel like going through the process of learning a new piece because it is very time and energy consuming. But I know that like the pain of quote unquote pain of studying is so worth the, the, the joy of, how it feels when you conduct and you really have the piece internalized, you know, like I love nothing more than having a piece memorized in every detail to as best as I can, because then I feel totally free to play with the musicians and interact with them and provide them like a space. You can't really provide the musicians a space for the spirit of the music. If you are like figuring out what's happening in the piece, you know what I mean? Like I, my, you know, if you think about food, like you could look at like a great salad on the table with like tons of vegetables and like nuts and like dried fruit or whatever and chicken. And it looks awesome. But like your body gets no benefit from that. Just looking at it, you have to not, you have to chew each bite and then you have to swallow it. And then you still have to wait for it to digest. You know what I mean? Before your body gets the nutrients from it. So I kind of think of that with studying or, you know, practicing a piece like you're doing on your um, live streams like you can't no matter how good you are you have to digest the piece over time so um with that specific example but i don't know i mean conducting is always terrifying you know getting up on the podium even even, i i mean if you compare myself to like someone like simon rattle i have absolutely no experience you know like a tiny little pile compared to his mountain but you know i have a decent amount of experience for my age and it does get easier but you know the first time i went to conduct a full orchestra you know i was terrified but i i was prepared and i did it anyway and i gained so much from that there's no real substitute for just jumping off the diving board you know yeah this is something i'm i'm kind of i said this in the interview with with demandre as well that um I'm kind of on this kick right now, right? Of just, just if it's something you're interested in doing or if it's something you think you should be doing, yeah. you should prepare the maximal amount that you're able to do. And then at some point, you got to dive in, right? Totally. At some point, you just got to go for it and you have to then be willing to fail oh, yeah. and then learn, right? Oh, yeah. And so uh, I think that's such an integral part of the overall success. And it's something that uh, I talk about, you know, with not getting tenure in Indianapolis. 
Uh, I talk about that a lot. Just that failure and what it overall taught me about my life and who I am as a person. It's not even... I just feel like the career is aside, right? Let alone that I can't, I ended up here and everything is so much better for me. Uh, just as a human being, what I learned from that is that amount of pain was ultimately an incredibly oh yeah positive experience in my life. You know, I know you. I've seen you on Facebook uh, post pictures of the power of now. Oh yeah, and it's like I was introduced to that book at that time, and it, yeah, it was like transformative for me and helping me understand for sure um, that just that. Those kinds of things are it can be positive and totally. So, um, so speaking of being prepared and being terrified um, and whatnot, what was your feeling about conducting for us? You know, you were the first person to go. You're kind of setting the standard. I think there were six of you, six if I remember right. Yeah. Um, for those that aren't sure what we're talking about, we're t- we've moved on sort of to Kevin's uh, audition for not only our group, but then I think the next day was your conducting of the youth orchestra mm-hmm. which we i did not see i don't know if there are other musicians there or not or if it was just the, the committee. committee was there yeah um and so kevin was the first of six people to go um and I, i'm just curious about what your what your thoughts in terms of like what you were trying to accomplish during that very short time how you're trying to show off your you know the best of what you have to offer what your preparation process was like for that if it was different than studying any other score Mm. um and just kind of how you felt you got yourself to be able to be confident enough to step in front of a group Mm. like the alabama symphony um as a very young individual and feel like you can hold yourself well because i feel like you did you demonstrated that you knew the scores you seemed comfortable with what was going on and um, I, I just, I'm curious as a, as a musician, as someone who wants to learn, I'm curious, what was your process for getting ready for that? Awesome. Well, uh, those are all great questions. So first of all, I'd like to say that everything is cumulative. So I had performed Brahms first symphony on my master's recital, which I did from memory, the whole piece. Um, and then I, I had stepped in front of two big, scary groups before, um, one of and they were both pickup groups, but they had a lot. They were in Michigan. They were for uh, humanitarian benefit concerts, and they had a lot of really amazing, respected, quote unquote, important musicians in them. So I had had some experience, you know, with the I call it the process, you know, doing the work, which I can go into preparing what you're going to do physically and how you approach that and then laying it down in front of an orchestra. Um, and so much of that I owe to Ken, like I can talk, go on for days about all the ways that he taught me to be able to nail that audition. But first of all, I'll just circle back to the initial repertoire. So the repertoire for the audition was the, the, uh, finale of Brahms symphony one, the opening, which is a, uh, you know, a infamous conducting audition piece. If you don't know that excerpt as a young conductor, you should learn it because it's going to be on everything. The Infernal Dancer and the Firebird, also pretty much considered an audition piece because of all the meter changes and the tempo changes. And it's difficult and many, it's complicated. I try to avoid saying hard. It's complicated. There's a lot of information. And then um, the it's Beethoven 9, I think, right? Beethoven 9, yeah. The, fin- the opening to the finale of that. And in that same year, I had performed Beethoven 9. Uh, for a benefit concert as a player no as a conductor conductor. okay okay. so i had performed all three pieces before so my experience and my ability to put myself out there and get opportunities helped me prepare because i literally performed all those pieces so kind of like what we were talking about you i mean you were 
given those opportunities. So maybe you weren't like, I made this opportunity for myself, yeah. but being willing to step up and, and, and do that thing, even if it was uncomfortable or scary at that time, for sure. certainly led to the yeah. growth that you had that may have oh, helped yeah. you. Feel I mean, the rec room, yeah. the rec room for Orlando project that I did, which was a, uh, uh, memorial concert for the victims of the Pulse nightclub shooting in Florida in 2016. That was a, a, one of those exact experiences where it was terrifying and I didn't know if I could do it, but I pushed myself to do it and it was the defining moment of my life up to this point. That's very cool. Yeah. Very so cool. I had to I learn the Mozart Requiem in two days. Never conducted it. I had a score, but I barely opened it. I knew the piece from listening to it, but I had to learn it in two days and I conducted like a, a choir of 350 people and an orchestra, an oversized Mozart orchestra. The whole stage is filled. There's photos online if anyone's curious about this. But the point is the the shooting happened on a Saturday night. The idea to do the concert was birthed on Sunday. And then on Tuesday night, we gave the concert. So I had to learn it. Not And while putting together this pickup orchestra with my friends, um, we were working on it together. And it just blew up into this huge event that the Hill Auditorium, the largest hall in Michigan, seating wise was full so and i had to perform this piece you know i george shirley was i don't know if anyone if, if you guys know george shirley but he uh, is a legendary tenor who sang at the metropolitan opera the first african-american man to sing at the metropolitan opera and he's performed this piece with leonard bernstein with herbert von Karajan. like this guy is like standing right next to me and i'm at this time 25 24 and i'm like you know it was like crazy but you know what it was it, it and i and i don't want this to sound cheesy but it was truly an example of like the ideal music making experience which is that everyone in the room including the audience is there for the same reason like to honor these people through music and the musicians all wanted to play their absolute best and it wasn't because of me it was because of the cause Mm-hmm. So I always tell myself like the feeling in the room of like that many people being totally synced up psychologically and emotionally was a crazy feeling. And you could feel it. It was like electric. Like I'm raising my hand like it's silent. I'm raising my hand to like give the upbeat to the Mozart Requiem. And I'm like, I'm not shaking because I'm poised and I'm in somewhere internally I'm shaking. But it's just like the magnitude of what the piece was. That definitely was the scariest thing I've ever done. But hands down... The, the biggest so far event that to shape me is a so artist. definitely big risk, big reward in that situation. Huge risk. I mean, I studied, you know, all day, all night for three, you know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. I got some sleep, but and here's the thing. My teacher taught me how to conduct. So I knew I could conduct it. It wasn't like I wasn't sure. You know, he I had the tools to make it happen. But that's one of the things, you know, people always talk about being ready you're never ready. You just have to rip the bandaid off and go. You can, you know, you can make your tools as good as they can be and sharpen that saw. But at the end of the day, you have to pull the trigger. I hate that analogy because I hate guns, but you have to, you know, you have to go for it um, and take that leap of faith, essentially. And I'll never forget walking out, you know, the counter walks out after, you know, everyone is seated and tuned with the soloist and just like the feeling of like, this is like the craziest thing I've ever done. This is the most important thing I might ever do because of how many people were emotionally impacted by the concert. So, um, that is incredibly cool. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah it, I did not know that. That's amazing. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I owe it to, um, my friends, Austin Stewart and Colin Knapp and 
Ariana Bella, who they all helped put the concert together. Um, and, you know, it wasn't just something that I did on my own, but, you know, talk about, you know, the, the age old adage that, um, luck is when opportunity meets preparation. I mean, um, interestingly enough, uh, well, let's, let's go back to the ASO thing. <laughs> okay. So, so I, I just want to say I was, I felt confident standing in front of the orchestra because also the day before I did a three hour masterclass with MTT and the new world symphony. So I was I have I was a little warmed up. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? That's yeah, one of the yeah. hardest things for a young conductor who doesn't have a gig is is the ability to study and then remember how it feels to conduct an orchestra and do it without any practice. Because you have to remember like we don't get a practice orchestra. So we have to essentially know how it feels to conduct well and hold on to that feeling while we're preparing and then just so there's like an incredible amount of trust in your abilities. You have to trust yourself. Yeah. And that's the thing is that musicians can tell if you don't trust yourself. They can tell. Yeah, we can smell it. Oh, they can sure. smell it. <laughs> it's in the speed of your eyes. It's in the mo- way you move. It's in the way you walk up to the podium. Like they can tell. It's like dogs can smell fear. You know, musicians can smell if the conductor is nervous. Uh, and of course there were some nerves in what I was doing, but it was mainly excitement. Cause I have to be honest with you. I applied for over like a hundred jobs and not got an audition. This is the first time that I got an invitation for an assistant job and you got it. And I won my first one. So yes, yeah, so I'm very, awesome. that's very a pretty good track that. record. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it was depressing for a while. Cause I just, I couldn't figure out what I needed to do to get invited. Anyway. Um, so, you know, I knew, so I knew the repertoire. I was, Confident, confident being up in front of orchestras, big orchestras, and I knew an approach that my teacher taught me. And his main approach was, as far as auditions like this, is you absolutely have to nail everything. Because they're essentially seeing if you can step in without having no rehearsal for the music director. They can't take a risk on someone who is going to drop the ball if the music director gets sick, which happens. Happens in more places than others, but it happens. Or cancellations. You know, we don't have a lot of guest conductors right now this season. But if we were to, travel things happen. You know, sicknesses happen. You know, uh, assistant conductors are a very important aspect when they're needed. So I knew that if I made any kind of mistake or if there was any kind of thing I had to stop for that had anything to do with me, I would probably be eliminated so i just took that very seriously and so i you know of course through my my preparation of the music which i do the same thing for every single piece i memorize every single line on soulfish because i'm not a pianist so i can't play the whole piece on the piano i do do a lot of keyboard work where i like play and sing different parts and i I reduce the harmony and play that but you know i'm a line by line kind of a guy and it's time consuming but man oh man you really hear the piece so I'm sure it's very difficult to generalize this, but how long would you say it would take you to study one minute of a score? Well, it definitely depends how complicated the minute exactly, is. Exactly, right. But, so, I mean, I, what, I, what I try to say is, you know, it's, for me, it's all about um, the complexity of the piece and then how much of the material is reused. Like, for example, if you're doing a symphony and sonata form, you know, you're going to know the material in the recap. You know, right, um, right. so it doesn't take as long. I mean, I always give myself time frames. Like for when I did the Beethoven Ninth, I think I studied it for like two and a half months. But also, I had the luxury of not having any other projects, so that was like my main thing. Um, but that's a huge piece with tons of detail, and I was conducting it 
it uh, also a very public stage. So it's, um, I mean, how many, if you were to generalize or average it out, how much time per day? I mean, I at that time I was studying probably three or four hours a day. So three or four hours a day for two and a half months. Yeah. I mean, there were days off and there were days where I couldn't right. do as much, but on so average. So let's say yeah. five days a week. Yeah. Four to five days a week, three hours a day for two and a half months for one moment in your life. For sure. It's incredible to me, yeah, that there's just that much. And I feel like it's it's amazing to be able to to take the pressure of that yeah. and be able to deal with it, right? I mean, For it's the sure. same thing with an audition in general. Obviously, we're talking about your audition. But an audition in general, you have this right. moment in your life that matters, right? And so you spend so much time and so much of your effort putting it together for that one moment. And it's either going to go well or hope. I mean, hopefully it goes well, but sometimes it doesn't always go incredibly well. And um, it's just, yeah, it's inspiring to me that in the knowing that kind of thing, you're still going to say, I'm going to do everything I possibly can, regardless of what the outcome of that moment is, because that's what right. the music deserves. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate you saying that. But also, you have to remember, I'm playing the long game. So let's say, I mean, those pieces are all super standard. Beethoven 9, Brahms 1. Uh, so I guess once you learn it there, once you learn yeah, it, yeah. you have it. I mean, yeah, you have to point. review and you can always find new ways. But like, even though I, I didn't know if I was going to win or not, I knew that I'd be playing Beethoven nine Brahms one in the infernal dance again in my life. And that as a young conductor, my first job is learning the repertoire. Like I have so much repertoire to get through. I just keep a list on my desk and I'm just like, I'm never going to get through all this, but you know, you have to start and you have to chip away at it. So then you're front loading, basically. Yeah, you're front loading. And I'm playing the long game. I'm not seeing it as this is the end all be all. I could win. I could not. But I knew what I needed to do to win. And that was essentially show that I had the technical mastery to get the orchestra through these pieces because they all require some serious technique um, in the sense of starting and stopping different tempos. Um, subdividing, accelerandos, retardandos, you know, they show everything, switching meter. But then there's the the thing that actually matters, which is how you express the spirit of the music. That's what the musicians are going to remember. And so if you're stuck on the technical side of things, you know, you're never going to be able to get to that point. But it's just like playing, you know, if you're just thinking about the notes and like what you need to do with your tongue and all that stuff, you're never going to move somebody. But you, you, you practice enough so that right. you get it's to that important, point. Right, it's important so yeah. you can kind of hopefully make it more natural. If that's right. how I always try to think about it, where if you have some sort of weakness, right, say like a thuddy articulation or something, yeah. you kind of do have to spend some really focused time on that technique and graft it and you know craft it into something different that might sound more like what you want to sound like. So hopefully, yeah. ultimately, that it becomes more natural and you get to think about it less, but there is a ton of that kind of... For sure. Grindy part of the process, for sure. So obviously, even more for you, because not only are you doing the trumpet part, but everybody else's part in knowing, sure. you know, the idiosyncrasies of all the instruments and things like that, too, I imagine is just a whole nother part. Yeah. What the tendencies are. And that oh, totally. I mean, my teacher always said the only thing that gives you the right to conduct is knowledge. You know, it's just your job to know more about the piece that we're doing today the other musicians doesn't mean you're a better musician or that you know more about music in general it's just you have to be an expert on what we're doing today and that could just be an expert on what you want because what i found is that musicians really are less concerned about how we're doing it and more concerned about everyone being on the same page about how we're doing it and that we have an idea sure you know it's sure i hate to use this analogy because it's i don't want to offend anyone it's not saying musicians are dogs just waiting for commands but like 
a dog, for example, when a dog doesn't know what to do, they're very uncomfortable. But when you like give it a command or you like, you know, show it a certain direction that you want it to go, it gets super happy. And yeah, it's in. boundaries, right? Like kids are that yeah. way where a kid, if you just let a kid do whatever it wants, its life is in more turmoil. Yeah. Then if you set those boundaries and you right. say, if you ex- if you exist inside of these boundaries, you're free to do whatever you exactly. want. Yeah. No, I, I think I, I talked about this uh, in Demandre's interview as well, that I think we want <laughs> Oh, that yeah. you know, it, it, we need to be led. I mean, there's like it's a hierarchy of leading and following, you know, right? Because there are leaders within the orchestra, of course, and there are, um, but ultimately, we are all following what that conductor needs. And so, for us, we're just waiting to be told what to do, exactly. whether we agree with it or not. It's our job to do the thing we're asked to do for sure at the highest level, right? That's totally. when our expertise, so to speak, or our skills come into play is if we're asked, if we only know it one way mm-hmm. and the conductor asks us to do something different and where skills are not enough, then we're kind of in a problem. So, For sure. Um, but we, yeah, we're happy to basically do whatever. We just, we kind of look to you or the conductor Absolutely. to know. And that's so it's, I, I, you know, it's nice. And we can see that when someone takes that responsibility. Yeah, we can definitely oh, see sure. that too. Yeah. And it's just, you don't want to, Ken would always say, you have to have an answer for every question. So, you know, you have to, you know, do you want a crescendo? If not, why do you want, or no, if not, you know, if you don't want one, why? Um, what's the balance supposed to be here? He would just ask us questions about the score, like measure 38. What do you think the balance should be? You know, because it's not that we necessarily have to have all the answers in them prepared, which we should. But it's the ability to know, think how you think about the score so that in a certain way so that you can answer questions. You know, you've you've gone. You, I don't know is OK. It's better than making up a BS answer. But it really, in my opinion, I don't know is not the best approach because you should be able to kind of, dic- you know, know enough about the, your concept for the piece that you can answer the questions. Like if you have a big overarching idea about a movement and you haven't thought about a specific detail, the overarching idea should be able to kind of answer the question. Yeah. Like what is this able, piece yeah. about? What is this music about? And then you can kind of go back to that. But the audition was fine. I mean, I would like I said, I probably would not have done as well had I not done all the repertoire before and had I not just conducted a great orchestra for three hours the day before. Because, Fair, yeah. you know, so it's kind of a muscle. You've just got to get back into it. But, you know, I think it was like you know, kind of the perfect culmination of everything I had done so far because I was able to lay it down and make people feel comfortable and help everybody play at the right time. Yeah. And then I wasn't there for this part. So I would actually really love to know the next day was the youth symphony audition. And um, this is where uh, this is the biggest thing I really, really wanted to talk to you about is um, I've heard you speak about your plans for the youth orchestra, kind of the responsibility and the role you feel like you have in that. And it's very inspiring to me. Because you obviously not only take it so seriously because that's your job, but you clearly have a passion for this. You clearly yeah. have a passion for music in general, but the way you speak about the kids, like you care deeply about yeah. them growing and them learning and what their experience is like. So I'd love for you just to talk for a while about how you approached working with them to demonstrate Sure. Kind of what you, in that moment in the audition, what you wanted to get out of it, but then also kind of what your hopes and dreams are for for the group as well. For sure. Well, I mean, I prepare the same way I prepare for a professional orchestra, and I learn the piece. But they're certainly different, right? You're not going to talk oh, yeah. to them the same way. Oh, no, yeah. You can't. Yeah, you can't. Well, first of all, I, the, the, that touches on a good point. I don't ever plan what I'm going to say, because you never know what the heck is going to be 
the problem. But I agree with you. Uh, when you talk to professionals, you try to deliver the information. Can this be this? Let's do this this way. Let's avoid this. But with students, it's more like you need to think about it this way so that you do X, Y, Z. Like you have to teach them. You have to you have to take a symptom like an out of tune thing and talk about a bigger issue like intonation in general, why it's important. Everyone in a professional orchestra knows that intonation is important. Right. But because you're in an education or yeah. educator role yeah. with the kids for us. You don't need that. I think if I, and every once in a while, you every once in a while get this feeling that a conductor is in like a educator role but with a professional orchestra. Uh, it's awkward. And it's not, yeah, it is just awkward, right? It's not even like a turnoff. It's just like not understanding that kind of the balance of what this is that, I mean, even if you feel like we may not understand something that we need to understand, sort of doing the educator thing is just a little bit weird. But of course, with children, like you have to, you have to turn that on. Yeah, they need their minds. That's like an ample opportunity to, uh, you know, Kind yeah. of work with them. So, I mean, we did Tchaikovsky, uh, uh, Romeo and Juliet, which is a difficult piece, in my opinion, too difficult for their level at the time. So I, I studied the piece extensively. I was, again, the first one to go. So I went. We was drew, it the same order? Or is it just happened uh, to be that We drew straws. Nice. I, I got nice. One to go. So I, you know, my teacher, Mark Scatterday, told me, if you don't show the people listening and watching that you hear what's going on, they'll assume you don't know. They, they'll assume you don't hear it. So I just addressed every single thing I heard. And we didn't get through very much of the piece. I think I conducted for like 30 minutes or something. But we got through maybe the beginning to a little bit into the dum da dum 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 da dum Oh, into that section. A little bit. So we spent like 30 minutes on the introduction. But what I was trying to do is teach them a concept that they could apply again to something else. So it's not just like band-aiding everything. It's like, okay, so you need to know that when you know, you're playing this kind of a chord, this is how you tune it. Oh, there's another minor chord. Can you transfer that? Like, can you make that happen there? You know? So little things like that. I was actually trying to teach them things that even if I didn't get the job, they would have yeah, it grown. Just, yeah, exactly. Just in that moment. Yeah, yeah cool. For sure. And, you know, so... I just went through it and we, we started and, you know, intonation is treacherous in the beginning of, of that piece with the, the woodwinds, especially they're playing these corrals and these long chords. Um, and you know, they're Tchaikovsky, you know, is voicing them a certain way, putting the third on top a lot, which is tricky. It's quite high for the flute. So like, there was just a lot of things I had to work through intonation wise and, you know, being a wind brass player, I'm used to tuning chords and mm-hmm. being, you know, around that. And I have a wind ensemble background. So I was able to, um, you know, really nail that. And I think that that was something that helped me score some points. Because that's a hard thing to do. And if you're not good at tuning chords, you can't, it, it, it can't, it usually goes pretty poorly. So, and then with the strings, what I had to really work on with them is connecting the musical idea to what they're doing at their bow. You know, because a lot of kids, when they start off learning, they're up in the upper half of the bow. They're not really using their whole bow and using the whole bow and then using it in all the different nuanced ways you have to use it in an orchestra piece. That's really advanced. I mean, what I guess what I'm trying to say is there's usually a big jump for a lot of our string players and not just here, but everywhere from like playing by themselves, Suzuki books, solo rep, etudes to orchestra where, um, when brass players, we start playing usually in an ensemble, 
in school band or something. So we're used to playing and counting and tuning chords and listening across the group and all those things. So just building ensemble skills with the strings who most of them, because in Alabama, there are very few high school orchestra programs or middle school orchestra programs. So they're learning privately. They're studying Suzuki. They're taking private lessons. And then this is their ensemble opportunity. So I'm doing a lot of ensemble basics, but you know, just, you know, teaching them to use an even bow stroke and to sustain and to make a line. It just made the orchestra sound a lot better immediately. And I think for conductors who are listening, you know, you have to be able to show that you can make it sound better immediately. Not perfect, but the musicians listening to you want to know that you can make it better. And I mean, think about evaluating a private teacher, a trumpet teacher. If you play for them for 10 minutes and then they talk for 10 minutes and you don't sound any better, like that's not a good teacher. Yeah. Barbara Butler, my graduate teacher. The goddess of all trumpet teachers. I mean, she's she's figured out a lot of things in terms of teaching. And one of the things she talks about, I think it's why she's so sought after as a like a clinician, right? Or a master class giver is she's big on you got to address the elephant in the room and you got to make them better. It, like you said, it doesn't have to be perfect, but you can't if if maybe their sound is not amazing, like you can't skip over that and talk about something just because you're not sure. You got to address the elephant in the room and then something has to improve. So they see you right. as a person who in a short amount of time can improve something, even if it's like two percent improvement, right. it's still improvement. So that's a, I think that's for sure a very smart uh, approach, especially yeah. in an audition situation. For right. Sure. And again, when. I agree with that 100%. And to tie that back to what I said about studying with Mark Scatterday, he just said, you know, use your ears and fix what you hear. Like, he said, if you hear something, fix it. If you don't hear it, don't fix it. You know what I mean? But the last thing you want to do is hear it and ignore it. Because there's going to be someone on that panel, someone in the audience, who can hear it and thinks you can't hear it. And as a conductor, if you can't hear it, I'm not saying I'm perfect. I miss things, but it's like your job is to provide ears for the people in front of you. You know, you know, you can't hear sitting in the back of the trumpet section exactly the balance with the violins. You know what I mean? All the way up there. Like there has to be, you know, you that's the conductor has to provide that. Or just is the octave between the first and the second violins in tune, like when the whole orchestra is playing. That's hard to hear, but it's a lot easier for the conductor to hear. Because if you remember, violin players have the pitch going into their into their left ear mm-hmm. of their own sound. So they only have one ear to listen with. Mm-hmm. You know, There's yeah. a lot of these little things. So connecting that back to the youth orchestra, I just tried my very best to 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 address what was being played, give them a solution. We did a lot of intonation stuff with the strings, so I'm not a string player, so I've had to really study this and talk to people and learn from my friends, but in general, you want to base your intonation off of your open strings. So if you're trying to play an F natural on the on the on on top of the staff of, on the violin, you need to measure that F against the open E string, right? Um, so if I'm trying to get them to play that F, I need to, and it's out of tune, we need to do E, F, E, F. We need to hear that whole step, that half step, you know, or the cellos, they have to come in on a low D flat. I'm trying to get them to tune that against their C string. Yeah. Or if they're playing a low A on the C string, I'm trying to get them to compare that, you know, to, to other open strings, you know, like play your A string, then play your low A, then play your A string, play your low A to build intonation across the instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are things that even professionals work on, you know, Intonation on a string instrument is very difficult. 
it's super, super difficult, even for the most talented people. So um, anyway, yeah, that's how I approached the audition. And I think it went well. And I was able to kind of create a space where the students could tell they were getting better. And so if I was a little hard on them or like a little picky, they were cool with it because they could feel that they were getting better and that the problems were getting solved. That you're just raising the standard, not being mean. For sure. You're just like, I know you could be better. Let's get there together. Exactly. And that's been my whole model this whole time. You know, I'm trying to teach them that the the life values of consistency and showing up and doing your best and being prepared and, you know, not being the weakest link and, you know, showing up for your coworkers or colleagues, you know, those kind of values that last your whole life, um, that that starts with music. Uh, for me, it did. And for them, it should. And that it doesn't matter how quote unquote talented you are or what kind of family you come from or what kind of opportunities you have. If you uphold the, yourself to these standards, these ideas, ideals, so to speak, you will be able to contribute really highly to the orchestra and also holding them accountable when they're not, you know, certain sections in the youth orchestra are weaker than others. And I have to be very direct with those students and just let them know, like, you know, this is a very simple passage of music. You know, it's based on a scale that you know how to play. There's no excuse why it should sound this bad other than you're not putting in the time. So, um, you know, I, I only have to do that once in a while. But um, since I started, because people know that I'm going to I'm not going to let things go. You know, I don't have a we don't have a culture of letting things go in the ASYO. Everything gets addressed. So and it's not in a scary way. I mean, maybe some of them are scared, but again, that cannot that can be good sometimes. It's interesting you bring up the uh, the life skills that you can gain, accrue, achieve, whatever word you want to yeah. put there from your studies in music, but not only the studies in music, but the commitment of Lovely. working to do it better and the commitment of showing up to an ensemble and and doing your best, not only for yourself, but the respect of the people around you. Totally. Um, I, I kind of want to talk on, talk on this a little bit more um, in that just what you think, maybe we can do this together as sort of a conversational piece, what kinds of things we think that you can gain by just sure. study of music, like what kinds of life skills that seem applicable across the board for sure. from your study. Like one thing I think of is the discipline of learning something yeah. and trying new things. And ultimately then the progression that follows is an incredible model for how you should just learn anything really. Totally. Yeah. I don't know if you have any other thoughts of other parts of the discipline that are applicable. Totally. Well, I mean, the biggest thing for me is it teaches you from an early age to work that muscle of, I don't feel like doing this right now, but I should, and I'm going to do it anyway. So that feeling, that process never goes away, no matter how old you are, no matter how successful you are, no matter how talented you are. There's always going to be that little inner sloth that just wants to sit around, watch YouTube videos, watch YouTube videos and, you know, eat Chipotle all day. Like, that inner sloth is never going to go away. Yeah, yeah. And if you learn it from a young age that, you know, sometimes, you know, in order to get the big reward... You have to do, you have to sacrifice little rewards or like little, little pleasures, like sitting around on your phone. I always tell the kids, I was like, I'm sure you've been on your phone longer than it would have taken to master that passage. You know, I'm guilty of it too. Um, But there was a certain point in my life where I didn't pick up the phone when I 
needed to practice, you know? Yeah, I think it's it's such a good and interesting thing to talk about, I think, this idea of discipline and how learning discipline in something like music, just like we're talking about and how it affects the rest of your life. I, when you listen to these people who are incredibly successful, mm-hmm. it's really just discipline, right? It's the discipline to stick with an idea, yeah, even if it doesn't feel good or even if it doesn't seem like it's working, to try new things, but to see it through through and not necessarily just say, ah, this isn't for me. I'm going to give up because it's hard. Right. Often because it's hard, like you said, the better the payoff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And I think they started to call that grit, the ability to stick with something through grind. Yeah. Through hard times and through, through obstacles and through failure, essentially. Um, so, uh, I mean, there were definitely, there were, weren't times where I was seriously considering quitting music, but there were definitely times where I just, I felt really worn down and like, at a yeah, loss. sure. Everybody has, I think. And but you know, then you put on that recording, and you're like, okay, I can't live without that. I've got to make that. You know, I can't, I can't leave this earth without, you know, playing or conducting that music at that level. You know, and I think sometimes too, especially as a as musician, I guess it's harder for conductors to do this, but. Um, you know, sometimes when you're worn down, like playing duets with another person oh, yeah. just reminds you that this is a communal totally. thing, right? We're doing it with other people. We're doing it for the enjoyment of others. And sometimes I think the grind uh, comes from when we're alone for so long and totally. we're just, you know, we're just like, ah, oh, this is so hard. But really, sometimes when you get down in the depths like that, yeah, just sharing something with somebody else, even just listening with somebody else, you know, can kind of remind you a little bit. Totally. We used to do that. I'm sure you used to have like listening parties and things like that, oh, where totally you just talk parties. about things you loved about various recordings. Like what kinds of, what recordings do you have that are of just every time you listen to it? Like you're just talking about, it reminds you, this is why we do what we do, or I gotta play that piece. For sure. 100%. And with the students, it's well, interesting. Which ones? Oh, you you're asking any, me. Yeah, sorry, oh, I was you're asking, asking me. You. Oh, that's you're saying. Me, which ones do you do you, that stick out oh, to you? Oh gosh, okay. So I tried to think about this in preparation for this podcast. And the first thing that came to mind is that at this point in my life, I don't listen to a whole lot of music, classical music, because I'm around it all the time and um I've done a lot of listening, and now I'm very, very picky about what performances I listen to because as a conductor, I have my vision of a piece. And so if the recording is like totally opposite of that, it, it's like an itch. It's like listening to something that you don't agree with. It's like, you can sit through it, but you just think it's wrong. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, Oh gosh. I would definitely say hands down the recording of the Brahms four symphonies by John Elliott Gardner uh, and um, his orchestra playing on instruments from Brahms time is just, I can't love without it, especially the fourth symphony, like the last movement or something. I mean, it's just the balance is perfect. It's the intensity is absolutely there. The phrasing, the tempos, everything, everything that's in the score is totally realized in the most elegant, beautiful way. Growing up, of the the first thing that really stuck with me. So I got interested in conducting actually before I mentioned it. I around age. 15, Ramon Parcells, my trumpet teacher, said, you know, I really think that you have the thing to be a conductor. You should think about getting piano wow, lessons. Wow, that early, wow. Yeah, and I was like, well, I'm looking back, I would, I should have gotten piano lessons. But I didn't, because we didn't have a piano, and I didn't really know, I didn't really feel like, I don't know, I kind of didn't take it super seriously. But I started, and this was back when Borders was still around, and Borders would have a music section with scores in it. 
And so I, I would get, I would buy, you know, the Beethoven symphonies. And then I, for Christmas one year, I asked my grandma for like the Herbert von Karajan, Berlin Philharmonic, Beethoven cycle recording. And when I got those, that's when I first like got obsessed listening to, to those recordings. Yeah. I listened to them like so much. Yeah. Cool. If there were records, I'm sure they would have gotten worn out, but I still go back to those because mm-hmm. there's just something about the sound of that orchestra and the level of because you know they didn't have the kind of structure that we have in america they were rehearsing every day for hours and they just had such a com- command over the part the parts and just the the level of intensity in the sound now Karian was one of the first conductors to really insist on a specific timbre from an instrument um, a lot of conductors just kind of shaped the timbres that the instruments were giving them but he if you watch his rehearsal videos he's so specific on you know it's too dark it's too dark it's too bright it it needs to be more this sound it needs to be you know he would use analogies to get the sound he wants but he had such a clear timbre concept and i think that's a talent that he he had but nowadays i still go back to those recordings um there's, you know, I, with Spotify, it's so interesting. You can find, you know, recordings that you never would have found otherwise. Like there's a Vienna Philharmonic, uh, Claudio Abbado, um, with doing the Schubert symphonies and the Mendelssohn symphonies also. And they're just so sublimely played and the strings are just so lush. And, you know, Claudio Abbado, very sensitive musician. The, I listen to those, those kind of clear my ears out a little bit. Like when I'm feeling burnout or just like, I don't want to think about music, those kind of like heal me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really into contemporary music, which is funny because all the pieces I mentioned are like right. you know, Germanic Old repertoire. World, yeah. Uh, but, um, and that kind of starts with my fascination with an uh, idolization of Pierre Boulez, the conductor. And um, he's definitely my hero in many ways. And he did, I mean, there's no way I could, sum up his impact on the music world in one small interview. But uh, he, being interested in him and following his discography and his own compositions, opened my mind up to, like, the avant-garde music world. And, you know, what was happening, you know, learning about the compositional style in Europe and following that and being very interested in that. So I still will go back and listen to, you know, his Notation for Orchestra. There are four movements four consecutive movements and then a seventh movement, which are orchestrations of his piano pieces. And I've conducted them in a masterclass and I have that connection to them. So I love listening to those, even though they're very out there compared to Brahms or uh, Schubert. <laughs> um, I listen to tons of stuff. And then I actually love listening to like popular music, pop music, uh, electronic dance music, hip hop. Like I love Beyonce. So fairly well-rounded, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Beyonce and like Celine Dion. I love them. So nice. Yeah. I mean, I have a very mixed, um, set of interests musically, but then again, it I'm kind of getting in moods, you know, like, Oh, I'm on, a, I want to listen to the Cleveland orchestra play the, the Stravinsky ballets with Boulez. And then I just like go back to that recording and I'm just like, okay, that is how it should sound. Yeah. Or Boulez conducting Mahler seven with, a Cleveland Orchestra. That is like the standard of playing for me yeah, in every yeah. aspect. Um, and then things like Digital Concert Hall, the Berlin Phil, I love watching that because not only do I get to listen to these pieces, but I get to see a conductor do it and yeah, how the orchestra I'm interacts. Sure that's like kind of a masterclass in of itself. Totally right? a masterclass. Yeah. I mean, when YouTube happened, conducting changed. Yeah. For better and for worse. But for the better, we got to actually see 
very quickly how different conductors conduct things. And so it's like, you know, an encyclopedia on how to conduct. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I mean, YouTube is obviously just a, like you said, for better or for worse, yeah. it's just an encyclopedia of you can learn anything, basically, totally. anything you want to do. Yeah. So um, I wanted to circle back really quickly. Sorry, we got enough of a beautiful tangent there, but love tangents. Um, I just wanted to what your long term or as long term as you've thought so far uh, plan for the youth symphony. Kind of what I mean. You talked a lot about the educational aspect of it, but I mean, I heard you speak at your welcoming get together. Just mm-hmm. so it's kind of that basically what you said there, but maybe for. More people who might want to hear it, kind of what your vision for expanding the orchestra might be in terms of what you hope to achieve within this, like in conjunction with the school systems and stuff like that. Absolutely. So, um, you know, we have a fairly strong youth orchestra Um, coming from Michigan, where there were five solid youth orchestra programs in the state and all of them were pretty good, Um, you know. I'm coming into this seeing this is like really the only one of two big youth orchestras. There's obviously the Huntsville Youth Symphony programs in Huntsville, Alabama, that are that have eight orchestras. It's a very strong program. Um, I'm bringing this up because I feel like the level could be higher on the national spectrum, uh, comparing it to other orchestras outside of Alabama. And my goal is to gradually raise the student standards. Um, to reach for that level. And I think we've already done that in the first concert we did. Everybody said it was the best that they had played. And I think the students came up to me and said, you know, some of the students said, this is, we never sounded this good. And it wasn't because of me per se, but I was, I was the one who said, no, you guys can do better. You know, you can do better than that. And then they rose to the occasion. So long term, I want to keep that trend going. I want to keep the group getting better. I want to keep recruiting really talented students and making them feel like ASYL is a place for them. I do believe that there are tons of players in this state, young kids who are either homeschooled or maybe are at um, religious schools that don't have orchestras or private schools uh, that could be part of ASYL that don't know about us yet or don't feel like invited enough to come. Um, and you know, one of the issues we have in Alabama is that we have, you know, Huntsville and Decatur and Birmingham and Montgomery and Mobile and all those big cities are spread out pretty far. So how do we get the students from the bigger cities to come into Birmingham to be part of ASYL? Because if we're the state's orchestra, we should also be the state's youth orchestra in that sense. So I really want to diversify the student body of the orchestra and also diversify within our own area. You know, I love to have more students from the Birmingham city schools. Um, technically the ASPA is in, is in downtown Birmingham. So that's the city school, but it's a, you know, it's a highly, uh, highly funded arts school that you have to audition to get into. And we have a lot of ASPA kids in the orchestra, but you know, what about the other kids in Birmingham who don't go to ASPA um, or who aren't quite good enough to get into ASPA right now, but maybe have the aptitude to be an ASYO someday. How do we kind of nurture that and scoop those kids up and maybe put them on a different trajectory through music? And in order to do that, we're going to need to start a strings program. And that's something we've already started to work on and fundraise for. Um, If you look at all the successful youth orchestra programs across the country, they have, you know, one or two full orchestras at the top of the level where the strongest students are. And then they have, you know, sometimes three or four string orchestras that are either for beginners or intermediate or you know that area they're actually handing a kid an instrument and saying let's learn how to play this 
And so that's what we're working on. We're working on a starting a string academy that essentially takes kids who've never played and puts them with a teacher in a group and gets them started. So if there's anybody out there listening who uh, maybe is a parent or maybe even a child who uh, might be interested in that kind of thing, where can they find information about how to be a part of the Alabama Symphony Youth Orchestra? They can email me directly, actually, um, at kfitzgerald at alabamasymphony.org. We do not have a web page set up right now for the String Academy, but if they want to be involved with ASYL, they can email me directly, um, and we can we can help work that out. Uh, it's interesting because the ASYO is actually almost full. You know, we have 72 students, which is a lot. The winds and brass and percussion are full. The violins are full. We can't fit any more on stage. We could, we could fit three more violas and we could fit two more cellos and we could fit two more basses. Mm -hmm. But as far as filling out the Alice Stevens center stage, we are almost full. So that's a good thing. But then it's like, okay, does our mission stop there? Do we just want to keep filling these chairs or do we actually bring more people into the ASYO yeah. community? Yeah, I mean, the thing, the, the the reason I'm most interested in kind of getting your information out there is I'll tell a quick story, which is I was in undergraduate school and uh, I was rushing for fraternities, right? Okay. Because that's like a big thing that happens with all the freshmen. And uh, as I was rushing, my undergraduate teacher told me, um, if you're serious about this kind of thing, it's not that you couldn't be successful, but I think you should consider not rushing, right? You should focus on your musical life here. But not only that, you'll also get a family within the music school as well. And I can certainly attest to how many of my closest friends are musicians that I grew up with, you know, in undergraduate school, graduate school, you know, in the orchestra, we have sort of a social scene, you know, you're surrounded by it. And because I think it's that communal nature of working oh, yeah. together. So I imagine that could also be something for students in the youth orchestra to become this sort of family within that. And like you said, sort of having a home. Totally. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing to work, to expand it more more and more and more so that everybody out there who is looking for a musical home will be able to find one. Absolutely. And you can't, ex you can't express that enough. The idea of a, a music is a communal art form. It brings the people who are listening together, but it also brings the people on stage together. And you know, it's, it's a dark time out there. It's almost 2019 and being a kid is not easy. And I can imagine that all the decisions and struggles that are placed before them seem overwhelming. Um, but, you know, maybe the music can be a focusing point. You know, for me, I was a good student. I wasn't like all A's, but music was my number one priority. But it definitely kept me out of trouble. And it definitely helped me focus. And I definitely said no to some things that I probably would have said yes to otherwise because I needed to practice. Or no, I can't go do that thing that I probably shouldn't do because I have a lesson in the morning. Um, it kind of threw accountability into my life way sooner than it would have compared to my my peers growing up. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, the, the string Academy and bringing in more students is really important to me. We are lucky that Alabama has tons of great band programs. We will never run out of wind brass percussion students to play in ASYO, but because of the way this, the state is structured and the funding system. And it's just unfortunate that most kids in Alabama don't have the opportunity to learn a string instrument. And if you look at an orchestra, the largest group of instruments <laughs> string are the strings. Instruments, right. Yeah. So, and this is not just an ASYO problem, you know. I was I was talking to Dr. Blake Richardson, who used to work for the ASYO and conduct that before I came. And he also works at University of Alabama as the director of orchestras. And he has to deal with recruitment issues sure, because yeah. his state isn't filled with orchestra programs. Um, so I bring that up because if you think about University of Michigan, for example – 
obviously that's like one of the top research schools in the in the country and there's lots of smart kids who go there but there are two school orchestras for the school of music only and then there are five non-major orchestras wow of different types wow you know and they're all filled yeah so i'm trying to say like there's enough students to fill five non-major orchestras and one of them is adult is is students and adults who work in the sciences i usually actually was the assistant conductor of that orchestra oh cool but i'm just saying in that area and in the state most of the schools have orchestra programs and there's a connection there yeah you know if a kid plays violin from six through through high school and they go to college they're probably going to want to play in college right so it's not just about asyo getting better it's really like music culture in alabama as a whole which affects everything down to all the small regional orchestras down to the alabama symphony down to you know uh, colleges their music programs you know if 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 we can help contribute to the overall wellness of the ecosystem, so to speak, that is huge. And if we can create a model for the state to follow, it might be actually possible for them to get string programs happening. Yeah, I think that's a it's an important goal. It's not even just like a good goal. You know what I mean? It's like an important yeah. goal. Imperative. That you know? We should be the ones leading that charge. Right. Absolutely. I mean, whether or not the state is uh, the state of music is what we want it to be or not. We should be the ones leading the culture, totally. whatever cultural revolution, so to speak, that Absolutely. that could or needs to happen. Uh, that is our responsibility as as members of the Alabama Symphony and everything related to our structure. Absolutely. So yeah, and that's really where I'm focused. How can I empower, you know, the growth of music education, but also high level music education in this state? And how can I connect, you know, the homeschooled you know, viola player that's, you know, basically a prodigy and that has no one to play with, with like, you know, the kids who go to Vestavia Hills High School who, you know, there's like 20 of them in the orchestra. How can I connect them to become friends? And then they go to the ASO together and the, there's a thing, you know, sure. and it, we, you know, it's, it's just more than just, okay, how's my concert sounding and how's my concert going to go? It's, yeah. I think it's great, man. I think it's and really I, yeah, great. And I hope that, you know, it's going to take money. It's going to take hard work. It's going to take fundraising. It's it gonna... sounds like through the discipline of studying scores yeah. and through the discipline of putting yourself in hard situations, yeah. it sounds like you're basically ready to step in and do all of that hard work for sure with a, almost a seemingly a smile on your face, which is awesome. You're yeah. always in such a just you're always in such a good mood. So complimentary of the musicians in the orchestra because you're sitting out there so you can hear what we sound like. For and sure. It's just uh, you're a good presence in the orchestra. That's par- partially why I wanted to interview you as well, because I just it's just very, very nice to have gotten a chance to know you oh, in this you. situation. Um, you being so new. Um, well, it, goes, I, it comes back to gratitude, you know, like I didn't. When you engage in a career in music, you never know how it's going to go. You never know when you're going to get a gig, how you're going to get a gig. Um, and then once you finally get a chance to make a difference. Yeah, I remember telling my mom, I just want a chance to make a difference in an organization, you know. And I get this chance and it's like, you know, I could grumble about how I'm not conducting very much the ASO right now. Or I could grumble about blah, 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 blah. I could, I could choose to focus on and find negatives anywhere I could look. I mean, anybody could do that. There's, But there are no negatives because I'm an employee of a great organization with great musicians. And I get to listen to them play all day long. And I get to conduct these great kids and build something. And, you know, there's just no reason not to be in a good mood. I think that the longer you're in one place, unfortunately, the easier it is to find the 
to 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 miss the good things and focus on the negative. Sure, sure. So yeah. I just try to bring that to the podium, you know. Yeah. Uh, you went to Northwestern, so you know uh, Dr. Mallory Thompson. Ah, she's one of my favorites. Yeah, she's amazing. And I worked with her this summer at the Army Band Masterclass, and you know, masterclasses you get you take some things, you you leave some things. But the thing I will take with forever is she said, when you conduct, all I want to see is you loving music. Like that's what the musicians want. They want to see someone loving music because they're going to come into work and half of them are not going to want to be there that day for that particular reason. And it's your job, whether you think it, it is, whether you realize it or not, to love the music that you're doing enough to get them out of that funk and to and to make them remember why they went into this in the first place yeah. and light that fire for everybody. Yeah. Because, you know, as a conductor, that's kind of your job is to not be a cheerleader, but like a coach that pulls you out of people, pulls the best out of people. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm. I'd like to finish up. This is all really, really good stuff, man. I appreciate you being so open and and so honest. Um, the last thing I'd like to talk about, and I'm really, I'm just so curious what you're going to say because you clearly love music so much. Absolutely. That why do you believe in a culture where it seems like we're reading fairly often that classical music isn't relevant or it's dying or something like that? Why do you feel like classical music, we'll say in particular, I mean, music as a whole is certainly relevant to the individual, but why classical music do you believe is relevant in our culture today? Yeah, this is a tough question because there's two parts to it. The first is why I don't think it's relevant for so many people, but why it should be. So uh, I don't think that people find it relevant for them. Not everybody, but certain people, the people who aren't coming to the symphony, because they want a stimulating experience in the sense of the way that the rest of the world stimulates them. So we, we live in a very high stimulation environment. You know, we've got caffeine and we've got alcohol and we've got, you know, all the drugs you could think of, not that people should do them or are doing them, but we have a lot. We have phones and TVs and radios and cars and noise. and like It's like very instant gratification. Tons yeah. of that. Yeah. And music in general, I believe, is a meditative inward experience. And we don't have a lot of – that's not very sexy today. The, the, you're going to go to an experience that's going to center you. It's going to like – it's almost like a religious experience. Like you're going to get centered. You're going to listen. You're going to get quiet on the inside. You're going to take in this beautiful sound and this experience, and you're going to you're going to kind of get healed from it, like or you're going to be renewed, um, which is what I think music does for many people. It, that's not something that the average person who doesn't have a lot of interest in that kind of activity thinks about. I think, um, but I think that if they were to try it. And they were kind of guided a little bit, not just sat down in the concert hall and like, boom, transition from your normal everyday to hearing, you know, Schubert's Ninth Symphony, which you're getting ready to play, which is one of the most holistically spiritual pieces that doesn't have any text or choir. You know, it's a very, I'm just thinking that that piece is an example. It's a very meditative piece, I think, especially the first movement. Anyway, you can't, how can they make that transition without any guidance? You know what I mean? And I think it's tricky because we can't tell our list, our audience what music should be for them because that's kind of weird. You want it to be a personal experience. But if you could, you know, if there could be some kind of way to let them know that this is kind of a meditative experience and that if they are looking for the same kind of intense 
you know, nervous system response that they get from their outside world, that it could be, it might seem lackluster. On the flip side, I think the reason that it is relevant and that we need it now more than ever is just the idea of cooperation. You know, when you watch an orchestra play, you're seeing 50 to 70 people who lead completely different lives, have different beliefs, different thoughts on things, but they have to put all that aside to take care of the task at hand, which requires everyone to put their best foot forward, to to be responsible, take responsibility for what they're doing, and to like care about their colleagues. Like I'm sure there are people in every orchestra who the only thing that keeps them going is respecting their colleagues. Like, well, I need to practice because I need to show up for my colleagues. If if colleagues just being others, you know, that what a model for the rest of the world. Um, you know, as far as just you know, showing up for other people, taking care of one another. Um, I think that's a huge model, especially in a time where everyone seems to be fighting with each other about something, you know, you might have an argument with someone you sit next to, but like when you're actually playing, you can't feel that resentment. Like you have to feel like in, in brotherhood with that person. So I think that in, in, you know, 2019, when the world seems like it's going to spin off its axis at any moment, you know, coming to an orchestra and basically watching a model of how the society could be. You know, it can't be more relevant than now. It's just how do we get people to, it's like, you can lead the horse to the water, but you can't make it drink. You know, how do you make people want to witness that? Well, hopefully people have just listened to you (laughs) talk about it. And uh, that's part of the reason I asked that question is I just think those of us, musicians and people who love music, so passionately, just, you know, speaking about it passionately, hopefully it will make people go, I want to give that a try, you know, just for, like you said, a different experience. Maybe, maybe that's the point of the thing is there's all of life provides this, some sort of stimulus. Here's something that's going to be completely different, you know, even just for some variety. But, um, yeah, I think it's some very, very, very good points. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to think about that and really um, sure. and think about that. So, I mean, it's every leader's job to provide the why. You know, why are we doing this? If you're doing, you know, why are we, why does this multi million dollar organization exist to provide music? You know, and if you don't have an answer to that question that's compelling, you better find one. Yeah. Because everything goes back to that initial why. Yeah. Well, um, that's as good a place to wrap it up as I feel awesome. like as any place. Well, thanks um, for having me. It's been an honor. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I appreciate you coming out. Earlier on the podcast, you gave your email. So I guess if anybody needs to get in touch with you, is that a, a good way to do that? Yep. It's K Fitzgerald with a Z at alabamasymphony.org. Cool. And if you need to get in touch with me for any reason, uh, I'm on Facebook. I have an artist page. You just got to search RB Trumpet and you'll find me. Uh, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.